Thank you, worship team. I don't know about how that strikes you, but it just leads me into the wonder and the mystery and the majesty of our God. Um, and all of that from His speaking us into creation to coming and pursuing us in the person of Jesus Christ. So we have the privilege to serve Him, to worship Him, and to enjoy Him. So uh, one thing I want to, if we've not met, by the way, uh, my name is Nathan Brand. I'm the senior pastor here, and we're glad you're here to worship with us. Those who are in the back room or on, uh, at home, uh, thanks for being here. Just want to remind you, we will be uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper at the end of this uh, service. So you may want to get that if you have not gotten your supplies for that. If you're in, in this room, there's a, a table out in the foyer where you can pick up your communion supplies. But um, one thing that we're going to be doing next week is uh, we're going to have um, some people from Minnesota Adult Teen Challenge here uh, sharing with us about the ministry there. And if you've never uh, been exposed to that ministry, it is super encouraging how God reaches into lives and just redeems men and women who are trapped in uh, drug addiction and substance abuse. So we're going to be taking a special offering for that. So I just want to tip you off. It's not going to be the whole choir like we've been able to have in the past. It'll be, uh, it'll be a representative and a, and a few clients, but it'll be still, still super encouraging. So I just want to uh, tip you off about that for next, next Sunday. So um, you know, one of the cool things that happened this last January is my daughter Bailey, my oldest, uh, who lives in Lincoln, Nebraska now, she was able to come back and be a part of the winter retreat for our youth group. For I guess they called it the winter whiteout up at Camp Victory. And it was fun to have her back. And uh, that was, it really was a winter whiteout weekend. Uh, if you remember that weekend, there was a lot of snow coming down. It was extremely cold. I, I guess so much so that cars that tried to get up the hill at Camp Victory could not get up the hill unless you had four-wheel drive or, you know, special snow tires. In fact, my daughter Bailey tried that herself and kind of spun her wheels out and realized she was not going to get up the hill. And so she tried to back down, and then the snow and the ice kind of made her creep over to the side and ended up with her car in the ditch. And I'm not telling you this story to uh, throw my daughter under the bus, okay? That's, that's not the purpose here. Uh, what happened was there were a lot of uh, good Bereans who come alongside of people who really tried to help Bailey out. Uh, middle schoolers and, and uh, high schoolers that tried to help dig her out. That wasn't working. Uh, tried to push the car out of the ditch. That wasn't working. I think somebody tried to hook their Suburban up to it, but there really wasn't any place to hook onto the, the car. And so she was stuck there. And eventually she called Dad. And Dad called the tow truck. Because we have a towing package on our insurance. And by the way, if you have young drivers or old cars, I highly recommend that. It will pay for itself, trust me. And so, 
you know, it was, again, it was a snowy weekend. It took us a long time to actually get a tow truck to get out there because they were so busy. But finally, a tow truck came out to Camp Victory. And, you know, hooked it up, pulled it out, came right out. No problem, no damage under the car. We were able to drive the car home to uh, Rochester, and then Bailey was able to drive back to Lincoln, Nebraska, with, with no problem. But here's the point of the story. She was stuck. That car was not coming out, no matter the efforts of herself or those around her, or even the car. She needed the tow truck to come and pull her out. And as we look at today's passage, and if you have your Bibles, you might want to crack it open to Luke chapter 22. I think we're going to see a similar, even greater truth revealed here. You know, so as we've been going along, the narrative is pointing towards the fact that Jesus is going to the cross. Not as a victim, but willingly to go there to pay for sinful mankind's rebellion against the holy God. We've seen him breathe new life into the Jewish Passover, bringing a new covenant that is born in his giving his body and his blood. But what we're going to see in today's passage, as we interact with the people in this, that just like my daughter's car was stuck in the ditch, we as humankind are stuck. We are stuck, and according to our own abilities, our own resources, we're heading towards nothing but God's judgment and just uh, wrath. We can do nothing in ourselves to get ourselves unstuck. We need someone outside of ourselves. We need a Savior. And Jesus came to be our Savior because there was no other way. And so the passes we're going to go through today, I think we're going to see this just kind of as a sample of humanity as we, as we view four groups of people. But before I get into God's Word, let me just pray, and then we'll dig in. So, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, blessed Holy Spirit, there is no God like you. And we are grateful to worship you. We are grateful that you have intervened in our lives. And we're grateful for retelling this story. Because it's not just a story. It's, it's how you invaded history. It's how you've invaded our lives. It's how you've changed all of eternity. So Lord, would you open up the eyes of our hearts that we might see you for who you really are. And we might see ourselves for who we really are and respond to you. Respond to you in faith. Respond to you in your gospel. Respond to you in all that you are and the goodness that you want to give to us, especially in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, do your work through your word. Let it hit its target. Let it do its surgery. and Let it do its healing today, I pray. And Lord Jesus, it's in your precious name I pray these things. Amen. So, last week, as Jesus was kind of giving his last instructions to his disciples, one of the things that he talked about is the fact that spiritual 
battle is going to happen. That Satan, in fact, was looking to sift all of them to cause them to fall away from him, to cause them to abandon their faith. And Jesus instructs them to pray. Pray as they don't fall into temptation. Because a time of testing is coming. It's right at the door. And it's going to test even Jesus himself. And so in this passage, we're going to see Jesus in comparison to all those that are around him in their broken and stuck humanity. And even if their intentions for Jesus are good. And if we look closely enough, I think we'll see ourselves in here. But it starts with those who are close to Jesus. It starts with his disciples. So in comparison, we start with the spiritually listless disciples and the spiritually wrestling Jesus. Pick it up at verse 39 here with me. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like great drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Well, the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives is a place that Jesus frequented with him and his disciples. And so the text says, as usual. This is a place where they had gone many times to be together, to pray. And as I mentioned, this is going to be a testing time for all, including Jesus. Because Jesus is here to wrestle in prayer. To prepare his heart. To prepare himself to be poured out as a sacrifice for men's sin. And so he separates himself. It says about a stone's throw. I don't know, maybe you know, across this room. That's about the length that Jesus separates himself from his disciples. But he's praying. And that's, that's a long way, right? If, you, if, if someone's across the room praying like, My Father, our heaven, I'll be my name. You're probably not going to hear it. But if he's praying, Father! All things are possible for you. If possible, let this cup pass from me. You're going to hear it. And that's what's going on. Jesus is wrestling in intense prayer. So much so that his disciples can hear it. He is in anguish. And he knows what's going to happen next. His arrest. His scorn. His scourging. The cross. 
He's going to be the target of God's wrath upon sinful man for all their sin. And he recoils in horror of that. In that moment, he'll be separated from his Heavenly Father, a position he has never known in all of his existence. It's an intense battle. And you almost ask the question, and Jesus praying this, is Jesus going to follow through? Is he somehow going to bail at the last minute here? And yet he's on his knees in a surrendered position. And he says, not my will, but yours be done. You know, I don't think we understand the anguish that Jesus has gone through. Maybe because we're too familiar with the passage. Maybe because we've never really slowed down and and taken a, a good look. But this, this is intense. I mean, to the point where Jesus is in anguish, he sweats so much that he sweats drops of blood. I, I don't know what that means. I don't know if it's the size of the sweat drops or is actually the fact that a blood vessel burst. But I think we can say Jesus is in physical duress wrestling with this. And yet... He has surrendered to do the Father's will. I don't want to do this, Father. I don't want to do this, but not my will, but your will. Not what I want, but what you want. In this moment, God in the flesh had to be brave. Think about that. Because he knows what's coming his way. Yet he is determined to do the Father's will. And he had to say, yet not my will but yours be done, because we wouldn't. And we didn't. Ultimately we can't within our own flesh. Only the sinless Son of God could fully say, yes, not my will, but yours be done. And in his perfect obedience to the Father, he will go to the cross. He's willing to fight this battle, even in reluctance, to bring everything under the submission of the Father. And ultimately, to purchase our salvation. He's giving up his soul in the garden so that he can give up his body on the cross. Jesus has been wrestling with this awesome task he's been given. On the other hand, you've got the disciples that are perhaps a little bit distressed about what they're seeing in their master. He's never reacted like this. He's never been in distress like this. I've never known him to react like this. And they can hear him. They're not maybe hearing every word, but they know he's in duress and distress. And he's been saying all these things about how he's going to die all day long. About how his blood is going to be the cup, the new cup of the new covenant in his blood. They're not sure what to make of what he's been saying, and they feel helpless. 
Maybe even a little distressed themselves. It's been a long day. It's late at night. How how do I respond? So maybe because they didn't know how to respond, they were just willing to give themselves over to sleep. Didn't know what to do. Didn't know what was going on. You know, in the Gospels of Mark and Matthew, this is three times Jesus comes to them and says, Hey, are you guys sleeping? Pray. And he goes back and prays. Three times. Luke is more economical. He just mentions it once. But he says, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Again, these are Jesus' disciples. They're his closest friends, right? Couldn't they hang in there with him? Just a little bit longer? Many of us are Jesus followers here in this room as well. You know, we can lock this into this one-time occurrence for Jesus in history. And, you know, the, the beautiful thing about this is we can realize that Jesus was tempted just as we are, you know, The author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 4, verse 15, he was tempted like us in every way, yet he was without sin. And praise the Lord. We needed a Savior to come and save us. But the battle is still being fought. There is still a spiritual battle that's going on right now. Yes, the battle is won, but it still rages on. And in our own approach to life, as far as dealing with spiritual struggle, do we find ourselves kind of being listless or falling asleep? Or maybe we just, we're uncomfortable with the meaning of Jesus going to the cross, what it meant for him and what it means about us. Are you uncomfortable with the thought of being called a sinner? Someone who's fallen short of God's grace are you comfortable with are you uncomfortable with the thought of needing a savior because what does that say about you would you rather be self-sufficient self-sustaining do we live in such a way like well following jesus really doesn't matter I think if we look at this, this is still a call to wake up. To wake up, to realize there is a real spiritual enemy. He still looks to sift us. He's still like a roaring lion looking to devour us, as, as uh, First Peter talks about. And he's looking to lead us astray, to help us, cause us to cower in fear. Or we so, or is he lulled us into sleep that we're just kind of sleepwalking through life? With the spiritually wrestling Jesus and the spiritually listless disciples, who are we more like? Let me ask you a question. We've got Brain Prayer Lifeline tonight. Are you going to be there? This is not a guilt thing, folks. 
This is just a question. Because I'm asking you, are you praying for Berean Community Church and the Kingdom of God to go forward through us? Or do you just leave that to the pastor or the elders or the leaders? We are fighting a very real spiritual battle right in the midst of it. If you don't think this COVID thing is, a, is not a spiritual battle, then you don't have your eyes open. And that's just one of the things that's going on. Are you praying? Are you on your knees wrestling with us for the kingdom of God to go forward? And then in your own life, are you aware that Satan's trying to get a hold of you? He's trying to get you off the path. He's trying to get you discouraged. Who are we more like? Now, here is the beautiful thing of this. Even though these disciples were spiritually listless, it didn't cause them to chuck their faith because, first of all, Jesus was praying for them. And number two, Jesus had come for them. And that's true of us as well. But it's, again, it's a reminder that we need a Savior. We need a Savior. We are stuck on our own. Then it moves on to a a focus on a certain disciple. What I call the feigned love and loyalty of Judas versus the faithfulness of Jesus. Pick it up at verse 47. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up. And the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus is using his words to his disciples to urgently wake up and be in prayer because the ball betrayal is in motion. Judas is leading this crowd to come and arrest Jesus. And here's the tragedy with Judas. Judas was once a devoted disciple. He had the privilege to be one of the twelve with Jesus, to be with Him, to be close to Him. And yet somehow He allowed Himself to get distracted, to become discontent, and to be led astray. And now He cloaks His treachery and falseness in the guise of affection and loyalty in the form of a kiss. To kiss the Master. Now, we here in the land of the frozen chosen do not uh, greet each other with a holy kiss. It's not our custom. We'd rather hold out our hand and say, oh, no, here's an elbow, right? But here's the truth. In the Mediterranean, men who are friends, who consider, consider themselves uh, either relatives or, or you know, good friends, will kiss each other on the cheek. When I had the experience to go overseas and uh, serve in Greece for a little while with Continental Singers, the, the church there, the men, they kissed each other on the cheek. They kissed me on the cheek, and so I kissed them back. But it was a sign of affection. It was a sign of familiarity. It was a sign of we're brothers, we're together. And yet G- Judas uses this to cloak his treachery. Yeah, it's, it's a sign. Hey, the guy I kiss, that's him. 
go get him. And I think, in a way, he, he thinks, I'm going to fool everybody. I'm going to fool Jesus. I'm going to fool the other disciples that I'm the betrayer. But Jesus is a faithful friend, even faithful to reveal sin. And he says to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Is this how you're going to betray me? Feigning love and loyalty? Is that how you're going to go out here, buddy? And I wonder how Judas received that. I wonder if it was like a punch in the gut. Like, you just exposed me, Jesus. You just showed me who I really am. You just showed me what's really going on in my heart. Is it possible that you and I find ourselves feigning love and loyalty toward Jesus? When we're just waiting for that moment to take advantage, another advantage opportunity and to betray him? Um, here's a confession. I'm a, I'm a fan of some of the singing songs on singing shows on television. The Voice and American Idol. I don't watch it, you know, constantly, but there, you know, it interests me. You know what's interesting to me though? How many of those people? And I'm, I'm, I don't want to be overly critical, but how many of those contestants started their singing career out in the church? singing praise to Jesus. And that's changed. They're looking for a different opportunity for themselves, to make themselves great, to make themselves known. And I can't know and judge every one of them. But those who once were pursuing serving and worshiping and following Jesus are now pursuing worshiping and trying to get people to worship them, following them, worshiping this world. Is it possible that some of us are doing that in other areas? And it's a warning to guard our hearts to not be led astray. To know that even a man who lived with Jesus three and a half years and was close to him could betray Jesus. As Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? To guard our hearts, because it's the wellspring of our life. To guard our hearts in relation to our Master and our Lord. And not let anything else get in the way. Including our own ambition, or greed, or what have you. And again, here's the beautiful thing. Judas' sin is not beyond Jesus' reach and redemption. Jesus dies for Judas. Jesus dies for Peter, who will betray him. Jesus dies for you and me. But it's that moment of coming face to face with our duplicity, with our treachery, with our unfaithfulness. And faithfulness, Jesus shows us our unfaithfulness. And will we repent? Will we turn back towards him and say, Jesus, you're right. Forgive me. 
Give me the life that can only come in following you. Jesus had to come because we need a Savior. Next, we see the strike first disciples versus the healing and reconciling Jesus. Verse 49. When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right right ear. Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed healed him. Now, you know, Jesus' disciples' reaction is very human. They're coming for their master, and they're going to defend him. Okay? Any, any, anyone who's been close knows that they would defend their friends or their family. I understand that. But they ask, first of all, should we strike? They don't wait for an answer. They just do it. Somebody whips out a sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest. Now Luke, Luke just tries to keep it general. Yeah, one of the disciples did this. And John says, it was Peter. And the servant's name was Malchus, by the way. It's kind of like that little brother, right? Yeah, it was Peter. And, you know, it's an interesting comment that he cut off the right ear. I do not know if that was skill. He's so skillful that he could whip that ear off or cut that ear, you know, as kind of a warning shot, or that he just completely flailed and missed, and, you know, I was going for the head and all I got was an ear. We don't know. But what we know is that Jesus' disciples were saying, hey, we're not going down without a fight. You know, and maybe it was Peter's way of confirming, saying, Lord, I'm, I'm going to go to prison with you. I'm going to death with you. It was an eye for an ear, if you will. But the, the disciples, they misunderstand their master's mission. It's not to inflict justice because he's here to pay for God's justice, pay its price. And Jesus stops his disciples. He touches this man's ear, who by all rights is his enemy. He's there, this servant is there to do the will of the high priest, which is to arrest him. And he heals him. And it just goes to show that Jesus' command to love your enemies was not his just rhetoric. He lived it out. And on the grander scale and the big picture of what Jesus has come to do is to show that he's come to reconcile the whole world to himself who was in rebellion against him and are enemies of the living God. Jesus is here to reconcile everyone, all of us, to a holy God. There's no them and us. There's no good guys and bad guys. We're all in the batch together. A people in need of reconciliation to a holy God. That's what Jesus has come to do. And we're all at enmity with him until we're reconciled to him through what he has done or what he's going to do in the narrative. That is go to the cross to purchase our salvation. Now here's my point. You're not going to be effective. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're not going to be effective with the gospel if you're looking to punish others. None of us is capable 
of meeting out God's justice rightly because we're all dealing with our own guilt. And so along the way, folks, if you're going to be a minister of the gospel, there are going to be people that are going to hurt you, that are going to abuse you, that are going to do wrong things to you. And your temptation is going to be to strike back, to want to get back. But Jesus says, no, (laughs) act like me. Because I will take care of justice. I have taken care of justice. The Apostle Paul comments on this in his letter to the Romans, chapter 12, verse 17. At the end he says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. And then he goes on in verse 19, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will keep burning coals on his head and do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And here's what I believe Paul means when he says, heap burning coals on your enemy. When you're kind to them, they don't know what to do with that. And it'll be like burning coals upon them. Like, what do I do with this kindness? Because I've been evil to this person. I don't know what to do with this. And they'll either repent or they'll blow it off and continue to mistreat you, but they're going to have to stand before a holy God because of it. Because they experienced the grace of Jesus Christ through you. I know many of you are familiar with the story of the Alka Five, Jim Elliott and the crew that went into the Ecuadorian jungle to share the gospel with these Alka Indians, these kind of savage people. They spent weeks and months dropping off gifts in the middle of the Amazon basin to, to say, hey, we're friendly. That was kind of their first you know, attempt at reaching out. Eventually they said, okay, we're going to go in person. We're going to land our plane on that sandbar. We're going to try and make contact. And though each of them owned firearms and had them available, they made a decision not to use them if they were attacked. They were not going to shoot back because, number one, they know if they killed those men or women, they'd be automatically sending them to hell. And they'd have no chance to repent. And also saying, this is not the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is one who gives himself in order that others may have life. And if you know the story, all five of those men were killed. And Life magazine covered it, and they said, what a waste of of good young men's lives. But two years later, the wives of those men moved into the tribe, embodied the gospel, shared the gospel, and it transformed that group from people who were at enmity with God and others and at peace with Him now. That is the gospel. That is the mission of the Master. And so, how about you and me? Are we so wrapped up in self-protection? Or are we willing to trust God for justice? Are we willing to allow Jesus Christ to love others through us, even our enemies? in order that they can 
receive His grace and His gospel. And Lord willing, receive His redemption. And folks, I'm going to tell you, that is not natural. That is not our natural reaction. But it's what Christ can do in us. Not me, but Christ in me doing that. But Jesus had to come. Because that's not natural. And we needed a Savior. Last of all, the covert religious leaders versus the out in the open Jesus. Verse 52. Then Jesus said to his chief then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, as you and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. This is quite an entourage that comes to arrest Jesus. The chief priests, that is the family members of the chief priest. There's only one chief priest, but those of his family. Guards who were Levites who had security duty of the whole temple, the whole kind of mini army security force. And the elders, those who were leaders of the people, tribal leaders. This group represents those who felt threatened by Jesus and his teaching. Because they were looking for a way to get rid of him, as chapter, as uh, verse 2 said, the beginning of this of this chapter. And they came armed. They came armed. Clubs, swords, and Jesus calls them out. Am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs? In the Greek, it says literally, have you come out against a marauder? Against a bandit? Is that who you think I am? And he calls them out for their covert cowardice. Every day, I was with you in the temple, in the courts. And you didn't lay a hand on me. And he calls out their motives and their malevolent influence, and malevolent spiritual influence. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. You see, Satan has his hand on these men's hearts. And the tragedy is that these men who were supposed to represent God, who had been trusted as the servants of the living God in their covert actions and with their own selfish motives, they find themselves entrapped by the influence of Satan. Now, you know, the cool thing, kind of as a sideline, is God's purposes aren't going to be thwarted. In fact, God's going to use the actions of Satan and his influence to still bring about his purposes. As Martin Luther would say, he's the devil, but he's still God's devil. And that's how sovereign our God is. So what a great thing to think about. But these men were living covert lives. And sadly, that hasn't changed in over 2,000 years. In these last couple of years, there have been a rash of evangelical leaders who have found themselves in sexual sin and sexual abuse. And the sad thing about what's going on here, and I'm, looking, I'm not looking to name names or point to any one particular thing, but 
The sad thing about it, in their case after case, that these men have gone to great lengths to cover it up. Smearing their accusers and things of that nature. And it is a discredit to the gospel. It hurts the people of God. It hurts the reputation of Jesus. But God is a God who brings things into the light. And those things have been revealed. And for those of us who follow Jesus Christ, we, it should be a warning shot across our bow. Maybe we're not engaged in this type of thing, but we can never say, it could never happen to me. It could never happen to us. Many of you know I'm the leader of the Evangelical Pastors Fellowship here in Rochester. We had a conversation about this in our last meeting. We made it the topic of our meeting. And I loved what Woody Rowland had to say from, from Autumn Ridge. He says, look, I find that when I keep secrets, that's when I'm, I'm prime time target for the enemy to try and get a hold on me. So I try not to keep secrets. I try and bring these things out into the open with those I can trust. That doesn't mean he just puts it out there for everyone to see, but he's got people that he can bring those things to. And it's the truth of James 5.16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another in order that you might be healed. And I know I've told this story before. I'm going to tell it again because it was, it's just as powerful now as it was then. Years ago, I was leading a singles ministry and we had a men's Bible study. And I remember the night that it happened. We're sitting there studying the Word of God and, and we were praying for one another and one of the guys just said, hey guys, I have a confession. I'm addicted to porn, and it's kicking my tail, and I don't know what to do about it. And this was in the day when you had to actually go out and buy it, right? It wasn't coming through your wireless devices. And it was like a pin dropped in that room. And then another guy said, you know what? Me too. And another guy said, me too. And it wasn't every guy in the room, but it was significant enough but here's what was going on. Those guys were keeping that hidden because they were ashamed of it. And they were ashamed of what was going to happen if others found out. But this guy, praise the Lord, was so beaten up by his sin, by his failure, that he, he just felt like, I'm going I'm to trust these guys with this. And I'm going to confess it. And I'm going to tell you, that that changed the whole course of that Bible study, the relationships between the guys, and it also changed the course of how much control that sin had in those men's lives. I mean, I'm not saying it just went away magically, but it had a lot less power because of the truth of confessing your sins to one another, praying for one another in order that you might be healed. Men got healed. Men got healed. So here's the question for us. Are we living a covert life? You, me, the, the stuff we're covering up. Not allowing to come into the light. And folks, <laughs> here's the truth. Jesus had to come because we have sin. Why are we shocked? 
But that's the truth. Why are we shocked when we find that out? I'm not, I never celebrate anybody's sin. But we're all wrestling with it, right? And God is at work trying to be formed in us. I love what the Apostle John says in his first letter. John 1 John chapter 1, verses 8-10. through 10. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful. And he is just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And if we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar, and His word is not in us. Folks, that's the gospel. that we're struggling with sin and Jesus came to forgive it. And so we can bring that out into the light. We don't have to pretend like it's not a problem. We can be set free. Now again, I'm not, I'm not saying go out and broadcast this on Facebook or whatever, but find some faithful brothers and sisters who are safe who you can share this with, who can share that burden with you. And just back to this particular incident, right? Chief priests have come to arrest Jesus. You know what happens in the, gospel, in the book of Acts? In chapter 6, verse 7, it says, a large number of priests became obedient to faith. Now, I don't know if some of those priests were in that party who came and found Jesus that night. But here's what I do know. Some men who were dependent upon their ability to follow the law and be good enough in God's sight and were failing were set free because they became obedient to faith in what Jesus has done for them. It breaks their broken attempts to be justified by their own means. And maybe it wasn't as heinous as things like porn or adultery or theft. Maybe it was gossip, pride, or self-righteousness. But it was still covert, trying to be kept under wraps. Is that you and me? Is that you and me? Jesus offers a way to bring these things out into the light, to be forgiven, and to be set free. So as we've worked our way through this passage, is there someone you find yourself identifying with? The spiritually listless disciples, the feigned love and loyalty of Judas, the strike first, self-protective heart of the disciples, or the covert attitude and actions of the religious leaders. And again, the good news is we can bring this all out into the light before our Lord Jesus. Because he came to save us. We're stuck in ourselves. And he came to get us unstuck that we might experience God's forgiveness, experience God's transformation, and to be set free in Him. Jesus is heading toward the cross. And now we're going to move into a time of celebration, of reminder that Jesus did come because we needed a Savior, that He did pay the price, and that in Him we can be forgiven and free. So here at Berean, we practice what we call open communion. 
in the Lord's Supper. That means that if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're trusting him for salvation and him alone, you're welcome at this table. It's not me that invites you here. It's not the Breen Community Church. It's him. And you're welcome at this table. But again, we come thoughtfully because we're stuck in our sin. We're stuck in ourselves. It's our sin that put him on the cross. And so there's a self-examination time. There's a confession time that we need to enter into this time with. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man or woman ought to examine themselves before they eat or eat the bread or drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we'd not come under judgment. And when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So for a few minutes here, Colleen's going to play softly in the background and just say, Lord, show me where I'm out of sorts with you. Show me where I'm like any of these four groups or something else, or I'm, I'm not doing what you want me to do, or I'm not saying your will be done, but I'm saying my will be done. And then we confess our sins, and he is faithful, he is just, to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Let's repent and agree with God, and then continue this time of celebration.